Machiavelli's ideas are basically sound ones for the Nietzschean people. Unfortunately, he was an optimist. Welcome to Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast. I am Ethan Maestri, out of Sharon Christina, by John Ernest, of Pride Chihuahua. And I am Ryan Mazako, out of Tamay, of Michael Lloyd. Wait, Mike? As in Michael Mazako? Yeah, yeah. Joseph's grandson? Yeah, yeah. Oh, That's dude, one. you got good genes. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Well, like I said, I'm Ethan, this is Ryan, and this is Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast. So this week we're actually discussing the episode Double Helix. But before we get into that, Ryan, uh, we actually have a little bit of listener feedback. Yeah, we had this, I've been sitting on this actually for a couple of weeks, and I decided I wanted to go ahead and break this out. I was actually waiting on you, Ethan, because you had a homework assignment. If you remember, going back to, I think it was week two, episode two of this yeah, show. I, I do remember. Yeah. You, I, I, I gave you a homework assignment. And I gave I, you several weeks to do it. And I promptly forgot about it once you issued it to me. Yeah. Yeah. Almost yeah. like it was by design. I'm just going to let you know right now, I barely made it through high school. Hike school. <laughs> <laughs> so what what uh, listener feedback do we have? I'm guessing it's in regard to, I, what was my homework assignment? That was in regard to black holes, rogue black holes, right? That's right. That's right. It was about black holes, rogue black holes. So we got a little information regarding that from one of our listeners on Twitter. He is at Nathan318. So we'd like to give a shout out to him. Thanks for, for sending us yeah, this, this link. Yeah, thanks for that. It's uh, it's a uh, from space dot com, and it talks about rogue black holes. Oh, I did look at this. See, this was the whole question of is what is a rogue black hole? Are they a real thing, or is it just something made up for science fiction? Um, see, because I imagine them with a sash and like a swashbuckling sword, and you're looking at me like I'm totally off. <laughs> oh, that's right, because this is science. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's from space.com, and uh, once this episode is released, I'll go ahead and retweet that uh, that link. That way, if anyone out there wants to look at this, too. Yeah. Um, what we have here, it's a mystery object in space, a rogue black hole, or a strange supernova. That's a question. And it says, an object previously thought to be a supernova may actually be a black hole ejected from its home galaxy. Now, I'm not going to read this entire article. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. But um, it, it, it goes into what theoretically could possibly be um, a rogue black hole, how they could be formed, and what it talks about is you have uh, two small galaxies – um, in close proximity, they're in a cluster, and two of these small galaxies who have black holes at their core, and when these two galaxies collide, it causes a sort of, it's called a recoil, is what it says, and um, I, I'm not exactly sure how it all works. It's like sometimes they, they could um, combine, coalesce, or sometimes they could just kick them out. And right. so these black holes just go flying just zing across the through, universe. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, there's another article that I found too that uh, CFA. Harvard. Edu sounds smart. It does, and so it, it talks about uh, the same kind of thing that they they actually believe that there are rogue black holes roaming about the Milky Way galaxy. Right, and they say that we are in no danger. At least not for the next several million years, at least. Which, if you can't see it, how do they know we're not in any danger? You know what? Honestly. They actually, it's almost like you knew what this article said. Okay. <laughs> and you didn't. And I have not read this, But they this, address folks. this. I they, have not. They do actually address that. Um, what happens is um, the the energy 
actually makes... Wait a second. Is this going to involve mathematics in any way, shape, form, or fashion? Not if we dumb it down enough. Okay, you're going to have to. Okay. So, yeah, basically what the this black hole is able to um, pull in enough energy, enough stars, enough light, enough gases that illuminate... This is dancing dangerously close to fractions. But the, the stuff around the black hole illuminates. So you don't actually see the black hole. You see the stuff around it. The stuff that's getting ate up. Well, more or less. Tor- or, the stuff that's, or the stuff torn that's apart. close enough to it that it's able to pull it in. Can, okay, can we just go with, they say, uh-huh. we don't have anything to worry about. I can go to sleep tonight and not have to worry about it. Will that work? Yes. Okay. The point is, black, uh, rogue black holes, as seen in Andromeda, are in fact a possibility. Okay. So So basically what we have is is science being married with the storytelling of the of the Andromeda series. Yeah. So okay. it's so it's, you've got a, a fictional telling a story merged with with science. Yeah. So it's like science and fiction together is what we what we ended up with. Yeah. So yeah. There's a word in there. No, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. But moving on now uh, to this week's show, we've got uh, Double Helix. Ethan, did you find anything interesting about this show in your preparation? Yeah, actually I did. There was uh, several things that uh, caught my eye. Of course, this is another episode written by Matt Keane and Joe Reinkmeyer, uh, which we had them for uh, To Loose the Faithful Lightning a couple of weeks ago. In addition to that, we have some great guest stars uh, that were on this episode. Uh, we had Paul Johannesson. Uh, he played Guderian. Uh, he has a long list of 90s TV credits that that he has done, uh, among them Beverly Hills 90210, uh, the Lonesome Dove TV series. Uh, and in the late 90s, he played uh, Nick Wolf in the Highlander, the Raven television series. So it was good to see him in this episode. Uh, Dylan Burke played Freya, a very striking actress, uh, almost exotic looking. Mm-hmm. She had a recurring role as a sorceress in the Beastmaster, uh, that from the nineties as well. And then a few other various roles in other, uh, syndicated series. And then lastly, I wanted to bring up Elizabeth Ty, and it's interesting. She plays the fan pilot in this episode, but she's played the fan before we have actually already seen her in, um, under the night. Hold on. Let me guess because we've only seen one other fan. In the whole series, was it Refractions of Dawn? It was Refractions of Dawn, yes. And so she reprises the role of a Than Mm -hmm. as the Than pilot in this episode. And we get to see her again later in season one as she plays uh, another Than. And I I failed to write the name down. I'm sorry. But it's it's in the uh, the episode, The Banks of the Lethe. Okay. So I wonder if she felt she was being typecast. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's interesting because this was very early in her career. I think she was about 21, 22 years old, maybe at the time when she did these roles. But then she goes on to do uh, other things. Uh, the show, uh, the 4400 and the Dresden Files, both uh, mm-hmm. written uh, episodes written by uh, uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf. Uh, she does the Fringe uh, television series, Eureka, which is another sci-fi show that I happen to like. And then even uh, doing film, she uh, had some minor roles in the X-Men uh, Origins movie, Wolverine, and then also in the, the 2013 film, Man of Steel. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I thought there were some uh, some interesting uh, guest stars mm-hmm. that we get to see in this episode. That's all I got. Why don't you tell us what you know about this episode? Okay. In Double Helix, Tyr starts out by uh, doing one-handed chin-ups, which is very impressive. We can only see him from the waist up, but I'm pretty sure he's really doing it. Meanwhile, in the corridor... Rami is checking herself out in the mirror when Harper catches her and quickly takes credit for her very realistic form. Rami begins a line of questioning which starts to make Harper a bit uncomfortable when Dylan orders all hands to command. On command deck, the crew finds activity in what was supposed to be an uninhabited system. They find themselves in the middle of a fight between Thantrikal and Nietzscheans. Nietzscheans? I guess Tyr could hear the conversation from his workout room as he promptly appears on the view screen, intrigued by the discovery. But I guess somehow he still missed the captain's order, all hands to command. Dylan decided to intervene by saving the Than ship. 
He figures if he can negotiate peace between the Than and the Nietzscheans, this will put the Commonwealth back on the map. Tyr enters command and has decided to play now that the situation seems to involve his own safety. Dylan orders a ceasefire. The Than agree, and the Nietzscheans blow up the Than. You didn't see that coming? It gets worse. Turns out the blast came from a plasma cannon located on an asteroid which is home to a Nietzschean colony. The Nietzscheans hit the Andromeda with the plasma cannon, and the usual ship quakes and sparks shooting out the consoles, but everything is fine. They fire missiles back, and the Nietzscheans cease fire. The Nietzscheans hail the Andromeda. On the view screen, a Nietzschean identifies himself as Guderian, Alpha of the Orca Pride. He says the Than have been attacking them for over 50 years, but he's willing to talk if Dylan will come down there and bring Tyr along. Dylan agrees. Tyr informs Dylan that this was a common Nietzschean tactic to capture high guard captains, use them as human shields against their own ships, and this is most certainly what Guderian is planning to do. They need a different plan. Tyr will go down by himself to find out what Guderian is really up to and send Dylan in the highly unlikely chance that everything is actually on the up and up. On the asteroid, Tyr's lancer pod lands in a cargo bay as Guderian waits for it to open. When it does, he and a small army of Nietzscheans that popped out from behind the crates like guests at a surprise party begin firing. No one could have lived through that. But wait, the lancer pod was empty. It was a diversion, as five other pods landed on the asteroid. When the coast is clear, Tyr sneaks in. Back on med deck, Harper reveals to Trance and Becca that he has the mission parameters from the Than's onboard computer. They check it out. It turns out these Nietzscheans are pirates who have been raiding the Than supply routes for over 50 years. They've been able to evade the Than by moving their asteroid by using the plasma cannon, but now a Than fleet must surely be on its way with blood on their mind. Back on the asteroid, Tyr ambushes a search party and holds a knife to the throat of a Nietzschean named Dimitri. This gets the attention of Freya, an attractive and available Nietzschean woman. Tyr is considering her proposal, but first, Olma, the pride's matriarch, inspects Tyr while they talk genealogy until ultimately Tyr gives a genetic sample and releases Dimitri. Tyr and Freya talk family lines a little more until Olma comes to deliver the good news. Tyr's genes are excellent. Welcome to the family. Tyr arrives back on Andromeda, claiming to have tricked Orca Pride into thinking that he will deliver the Andromeda to them so they can defeat the coming Than fleet. He also brought back the schematics for the plasma cannon. He then suggests that they can reconfigure the ram scoop to deflect the charged plasma. Harper points out that this will blind their sensors. Dylan agrees to the plan, but tells Tyr to go ahead and lead the Nietzscheans to believe that the Andromeda is fully equipped with the crew of 4,000 and a Lancer regiment. Back on the asteroid, Tyr offers Guderian a gift, a High Guard Force Lance, which Guderian accepts and immediately fires on Tyr. He confronts him about stealing the specs to the plasma cannon. Tyr tells him it was all to win Dylan's trust, and that the Andromeda will be defenseless without any sensors. Oh yeah, and by the way, there's only five people on board. Tyr is reconfiguring the plasma cannon to disable, not destroy, the Andromeda. It looks like he's up to something, though, and Dimitri tells on him. Guderian questions him. Tyr tells a sad story about how alone he is and how he finally has a chance to be a husband and a father and all this is all he wants. It's all good enough for Guderian, and he tells Dimitri to let him do his work. Dylan, in his quarters, flashes back to a time playing Go with Rade. He caught Rade cheating. Rade explains that a game is never just a game with the Nietzscheans, and if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Nothing is more important to a Nietzschean than proving their genetic worth, being chosen by Nietzschean females and passing on their genes. Meanwhile, back on the asteroid, Tyr and Freya consummate their marriage and exchange double helix armbands, the Nietzschean equivalent of wedding rings. After reflecting on his game of go with Rade, Dylan realizes Rade was trying to warn him of his inevitable betrayal and that he would do anything, even kill him, to win. Dylan then orders Andromeda to adjust AP solenoid valve to increase antiproton mass by 10% every hour until his explicit counter order. Whatever that means. Back on command deck, the Than fleet is now less than two hours away. 
Andromeda is hit by the plasma cannon, but because of the modification, sustains no damage. Then the ship is boarded by the Nietzscheans, led by Tyr. Guderian orders Dylan to hand over the Andromeda. Dylan says, sure thing. First, I need to check one last thing. What's the status on the AP power converter? Rami says the ship will explode in three minutes unless he gives his explicit order. After a standoff, Tyr pulls out his little device he was working on down on the asteroid. With the push of a button, the plasma cannon is destroyed. Dylan offers to protect them from the Than if they will join the Commonwealth. Guderian refuses and they leave. In the observation deck, Tyr watches the Orca Pride abandon and destroy their asteroid home as he removes the double helix from his arm. Dylan approaches and offers condolence for his loss of status of husband and father. Tyr says it was all part of the plan and he was always on Dylan's side. Dylan says, yeah, but you would have killed me if you had to. Meanwhile, in Orca Pride, Ulma offers two vials to Freya to make a choice. The end. You know, Ryan, you made a point of, of uh, uh, Tyr uh, not being on the command deck when all hands on deck were announced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, he, he knew what was going on. I, I figure what happened was he he just he couldn't get away from his P90X DVD. Mm-hmm. He was doing Ab Ripper. Oh, and okay. And that's very intense. Okay. So he probably wasn't feeling up to being on deck like right. he was supposed to be. Okay. Well, see, now it makes sense. I'm yeah. glad you cleared that up. Yeah. How about those abs, man? I, I don't think I've ever seen another human being, a human form like that with abs. They're oddly shaped. <laughs> <laughs> They're impressive. But they are oddly shaped. Well, I mean, he's he's not really human, so... True. You know? I, maybe that's what we're supposed to look like if we are genetically perfect. I hope so. <laughs> I, I only wish to have abs like that, and to be able to do those one-handed... Because, yeah, that was all him, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, totally. Absolutely. There was there wasn't any camera trickery <laughs> no. at all there. No, certainly not. The magic of television. <laughs> oh, man. Something else that... The, from the, the very beginning of that episode, um, Rami's checking herself out in the camera. Mm-hmm. You know, Harper comes down the ladder. Did you notice when he hits the floor, there is no sound? <laughs> I, I just thought that was a little bit of a, perhaps a production error, perhaps. <laughs> because you can typically hear footsteps. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a little bit of that background noise going on. But you notice he hits that floor hard coming off of that ladder. There is zero sound whatsoever. Hmm. <laughs> I just thought that was an an interesting observation. You know, another thing about that scene, uh, you know, Rami, she's really checking herself out and trying to figure out all this stuff um, about why Harper made her the way that she did. We've already seen her hologram. Yes. So, the android, Rami, looks exactly like the hologram, right? Um, what? Yeah, but it's wearing clothing, it didn't have to have this time. other parts. <laughs> True. Um, there are parts under the clothing that didn't have to be there, at least not in perfect detail. Okay. Kind of like a Barbie doll. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Ex- there you go. Exactly like a Barbie doll. Uh, and, and can we just say, uh, Rami's doing duck lips, and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> anyway. Moving on. Okay, so I have a question. Okay, because we've we've kind of we've got t- a couple of different pronunciations, and I want to see if we can be clear on this. Is it as Tyr says, Drago Musevni, or is it as Freya says, Drago Musevini? I thought it was Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> with with all of the the history that the Nietzscheans apparently have, and the names. Uh, I was thinking Mussolini, yeah. And it wasn't until I looked at a at an actual like a a, a, a a script that it was Mussolini, and I guess that's the way it's pronounced. I don't know. Well, that's how Freya says it. True, Mussolini. Mussolini. So you know, I, mean, I guess it's just one, tomato. One person's word against someone tomato. else's. Yeah. Potato, potato. Yeah. Let's call the whole thing off. Yeah, I I, I do not know one single person that says tomato. Or potato. <laughs> I don't either, but I'm not as well traveled. Yeah, that's as true. Some, so, um, Tear laughs. 
Does he? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I'm not. I'm not just trying to play bad cop here. Um, does he really laugh? I think he laughs. I, is that that was jovial, but not really. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, he does laugh. He's having fun with Harper. That is true. He's, he's laughing the same way a bully would laugh as they're shaking you upside down, right. and all your lunch money is coming out of your pockets. <laughs> You're absolutely, they're, right. they're laughing when they do that. Yeah, and tears laughing at Harper. You're right. You know, he growls and then he laughs. No, that's. You're absolutely right. And um, I guess it's the abs again. Maybe it's the abs that put that kind of force behind that particular laugh. Yeah. Uh, And then by contrast, you also have, uh, well, you had Tears growl just before his laugh. That was a pretty intimidating growl. Yeah. Um, And then later, Dimitri growls. (laughs) And it's not intimidating at all. (laughs) It's kind of like, you know. Mufasa versus Simba. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I know. I noticed that too. Um, it bless his heart. Bless his heart. He tried, but yeah, that it's a wonder he was even in the race for uh, Freya to begin with. Honestly, I, I guess it was because he was is Gadarian's brother. Mm, I guess yeah. was that was that the the established mm-hmm. connection there. Um. Because he he was definitely lacking in some traits, I believe, more so than just his ability to growl. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, good on him for trying. Um, I was thinking about the the plasma cannon and the hits that the Andromeda was taking. I thought it was interesting the way they played uh, Rami's reaction to the hits that the Andromeda was taking. Yeah, she was actually having a physical reaction. She was punch drunk mm-hmm. uh, from taking those hits, which I thought was a uh, it was. It's interesting mm-hmm. the way they're playing this dynamic of the ship versus the the avatar, the the ship in flesh, and how it reacts to actual body blows that the superstructure of the ship itself is taking. I mm-hmm. thought that was pretty interesting to see how that was played played out on camera there. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of weird. Really? Yeah. I. I'm not. I'm not sure. I was as crazy about that as you seem to be. Well, because you know. Uh, what's coming in the series, I'm looking at it and, and I'm taking it on faith. Okay. That perhaps there's going to be something, a little more exposition that would explain why something like that would happen. That's how I'm looking at it right now. Okay. Now, maybe we do a review at the end of the show and I'm like, you remember when Rami was punch drunk? <laughs> what the heck was up with that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But that, but I thought that was interesting just on the surface, mm-hmm. just looking at it that way. I thought that was an interesting play. Yeah. Uh, Rev Bim. Show some aggression in this episode. I mean, we we talked about, or, or maybe we didn't talk about, maybe we intended to talk about how when going into battle, Rev Bim, mm-hmm. he he won't fire the weapons. Right. Uh, he mans the sensors. Mm-hmm. But that's the most aggressiveness. Yeah. Is that a word? Aggressiveness? It is That's now. the most aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> that's the most aggressive he's shown himself to be so far. Right. And that, yeah, we, we had talked about that um, away from the mics just because it was a point that we, yeah. had, we had forgot to bring up right, in right. D minus zero. The, the way is <clears throat> he's in a combat situation. He's willing to man the sensors, but he will not fire the weapons. Right. So, so yeah. now we have uh, the Nietzschean boarding party mm-hmm. coming on, and uh, Beck is fighting them. Rev Bim gets in there, mixes it up, uh, and then proceeds to spit uh, poison into the face <laughs> of one of the Nietzscheans. And the first thing that came to my mind was the, you remember the 90s uh, Saturday Night Live skits <laughs> of the... Uh, the uh, the vomit gag. <laughs> Do you remember those? Yes. Where they put the wrist in their face <laughs> and it came out <laughs> the, the sleeve. Gusher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it was creamed corn. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first thought that came to my mind. Was oh my, the, you know, because we're not far removed from the '90s at this point when they're filming this. <laughs> mm-hmm. This looked very much like <laughs> the the vomit gag from the SNL skits. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, uh, but wow, that was quite the stream of uh, poison. Uh, or venom to issue forth from his mouth. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So a, l- a little bit of something about Magog we've learned yeah. uh, from this episode. You know, it kind of reminds me, uh, remember in the uh, 1989 Tim Burton's Batman, when uh, when the Joker has the flower, you know, yes. there's the old clown gag, you know, smell the flower yeah. and it squirts you with water. 
well, there was something highly corrosive in that flower. It was not water. Yeah. So I wonder <laughs> if he had, like, Magog juice in, if the Joker had Magog juice yeah. in the flower. Yeah, because it, uh, it was quite, apparently quite corrosive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, I just want to point out was the fact that this is the genetically modified, enhanced human race that we're seeing embodied in the, the Nietzscheans, mm -hmm. right? Um, maybe it's because these are pirates and they're on, kind of on the fringes. Maybe it's a, I don't know, maybe it's an Orca pride thing. I'm built better than some of these guys that they have. <laughs> Did you not notice some of the arms on yeah. some of these extras? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm just I, bringing it up. It, it's okay that you bring that up because I, I was actually going to wait a few episodes. <laughs> okay. Because, no, but we can go ahead since you bring it up now because we're going to see more Nietzscheans. Yes, yes, we will. And when you look at the the Nietzscheans that are portrayed in all of in each of these episodes. And as you said, they're supposed to be genetically superior in every way. Yes. <laughs> All of them, when you stand them next to Tyr. Look inferior. Yeah. Is Yeah. And, and that brings to mind the, the situation there we had Dimitri mm -hmm. uh, had the knife to his throat and everything. And, and of course, they said, you know, the, the, the final check is, you know, we need to do a genetic test on you. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he sits there and... and flays his hand open, which we brought this up, but we were talking about this before. Why would you do that? Uh, a simple blood sample out of the tip of a finger, mm -hmm. um, you know, the pinky, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm, I'm thinking out of the pinky might work. Mm -hmm. But no, he flays the meat of the palm open. Yeah. Well, and, but 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 it's so funny the way he, he, he swipes it across Dimitri's <laughs> face and then just shoves him back. Here, there you go. Have at it, you know. <laughs> Oh, uh, he, uh, yeah, he, he, he very effectively showed his disdain. You would think as, things. as obsessed with, uh, with, with DNA as the Nietzscheans are, they would just have those little, um, those little pricker pins. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. get, just do your finger, yeah. you know, and just get a little drop of blood. I mean, yeah. How much do you really need? Right. I, just a little bit. Sure. That's all you need. Uh, surely yeah. by, we can, we can get a genetic profile. Um, to convict somebody with less than that today, yeah. So you got to think thousands of years in the future from now. Yeah, there, there's, there's got to be, you know, there, there there's got to be far less, far less invasive ways to get a genetic profile th this time. I mean, think about how, how far, just in our lifetime, how far uh, thermometers have come. Yeah, <laughs> you know they they used to be quite invasive. Yes, you know we don't we don't need to get into too much detail. No. Okay, now you can you just got the temporal scanners. Yeah, just scan it on your forehead right there. That there's your there's your temperature. That's all you need. Yeah. So um, why why don't they have something like that? Yeah, I'm thousands thinking, of years in the yeah, future. Yeah, thousands of years in the future. Why not? Mm -hmm. Why not? Yeah. I mean, if diabetics now can you know, can check their blood without having to flay their ha hand open. Mm -hmm. I think they could do it in the future. Right. In the moment, mm -hmm. maybe that's, that's what needed to be done. Okay. Now about the, uh, the double helix itself, the, the armbands. Yeah. We have the title of the show. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And we, we actually pleasure. see the armbands. Yeah. They, they call them the double helix, mm -hmm. um, double helix coming from the, the DNA. shape of the DNA. Okay. Yep. Um, I kind of wonder if those armbands are supposed to be one size fits all, or if she had to get it sized for tear. Because I'm, if she was supposedly she was going to be set up with Dimitri, right? I'm thinking the one that she put on Tear's arm is just going to slide right off of Dimitri's. <laughs> I'm not trying to be unkind to. I'm not trying to be unkind to Dimitri, but we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe she takes the one that was for Dimitri. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's that's really all I could come up with at the moment is you know last minute alterations. When uh, when Dylan and Rade are playing their little game, did that game look familiar to you at all? Yes, it did. Uh, and I, I meant to bring that up. Yeah. Um, in Star Trek, we have. 3D chess, right? And in this uh, series, it appears that we have something like 3D Othello. Is that is that where you're going with this? Yeah, I mean it, it's just yeah, it looks 
It looks real. It, it, what was the name of it again? It's called Go. Go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know what? I think I I I just thought of this. I probably I know where they came up with that name. Have you ever played with somebody that gets distracted a lot when you're playing a game? Yeah. And you're just sitting there and it's like. <sighs> <laughs> Uh, at times, um, I've been like that playing Firefly with a, a certain someone that we know. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, well, and you, and you just want to say, just, just, just go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, when I was watching this episode at the end, I have you ever seen that trick where somebody, you know, you're standing on a ledge or something, and somebody comes up behind the other person and they sort of kind of halfway push them and then they grab them and pull them back and they go, saved your life. Yeah. Is that kind of what Dylan is doing with the Orca Pride here? Because it's like, okay, we're going to get rid of your weapon. You are completely defenseless. You are all going to die. But I can save you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, I think that's going to get into our further discussion of the show. Dylan doesn't really have an appreciation for the Nietzscheans, at least not at this moment. Well, yeah. He understands he needs them, but he doesn't really... <laughs> on his own, he wouldn't have much use for them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think it might be a little bit of a power trip for him to be able to, to put them in, in the position that he puts them into. Okay, yeah, I can see that. All right, so we're going to get serious now then? I guess, yeah. I mean, unless you've got some other observations. No. Yeah. Let's get serious. Okay. Let's get real. So so let's get down to it. Uh, what do we actually learn from this episode? What are, what are some points that we can take away from this? From Double Helix. Well, you know what? You just started it. Dylan really hates the Nietzscheans. Yes. Yeah, he has a real problem with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we have that whole scene where Rev Bim comes in. And the discussion, that's one thing I like about this show is they don't really, they don't really sugarcoat and they don't couch, uh, kind of like some Star Trek episodes do. Uh, I really appreciated how they, they just brought it you know, front and center right up. Uh, this is an issue of prejudice mm-hmm. and, and I just wrote it down on my notes just at the top here. That's what this show, this particular episode discusses. And it's prejudice. It's prejudice within race. It's prejudice between races or species. And uh, Dylan definitely has... He, he's got some, some issues that he needs to work out mm-hmm. in regards to the Nietzscheans and what they've done and what it's cost him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's he's wrestling with... Is he really prejudiced or, or is this just a result of what's been done to him? Well, yeah. Is, is he... You know, maybe he's just... He's still smart and real bad. Yeah. Because I, I feel like at this point, we still don't really understand what it is that he's lost. We know he had a fiance. Uh, we know he had a life. And we know there was this whole civilization that's now gone. But we don't know the particulars of it. We don't understand the depth of what he's lost so far. Mm-hmm. So for him to come to this, there, there's still a lot that hasn't been told, mm-hmm. it seems. And, and so, uh, yeah, on the surface, on the outside, from where we are as the the watcher, as the observer... Yeah, it looks like it's he has just some sort of hatred for the Nietzscheans. But we don't really have a full understanding yet of what they've cost him and, and why he feels so deeply. Well, I mean, it, it cost him his whole life, his whole life that he knew. Um, if if we, we can try to, to put that in perspective for ourselves, just think, okay, um, everything gone. Yeah, but see, you can say that, and and if I don't know you as a person mm-hmm. yet, and you say I lost everything, well, you you're still able to draw breath. You apparently can still eat. You have a place to stay. It, it doesn't. You mm-hmm. know, you, it, am I making my point? I mean, it doesn't really yeah. have an impact unless you fully understand that person well, and what it is that they've lost. But you're saying that if I were to say I lost everything, that you wouldn't completely understand or wouldn't be able to completely grasp that. But what if, what if I say I lost everything? Can I grasp that? Can if if you, Ethan, say I have lost everything, would you understand what you were talking about? Uh, if if yeah, if I'm the one saying yeah, I would I would know. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's empathy. True. Putting yourself in the situation, and then so if we if we try to put ourselves in 
in Dylan Hunt's shoes, then we can maybe kind of try to see what it is that he has lost. Yeah. And the thing that is a little bit strange about it is that it's it's such a hard 180. Yeah. Because we're talking about a man who just weeks ago, to him, from his perspective, just weeks ago, he had no problem with Nietzscheans. In fact, his best friend was a Nietzschean. Yeah. The best man in his wedding was a Nietzschean. And now, all of a sudden, because of of what has happened, he's completely flipped. Yeah. It's not just, boy, I really have a problem with, with Geharis Rade, who betrayed me. It's, I have a problem with Nietzscheans. And it's true, it was all of the Nietzscheans at that time that were involved in the rebellion. You gotta, you have to imagine that it was, it was Geharis Rade that, that hurt him the most. Yes. Yeah, so not a race issue. Not at that moment. It's, it's, it's one man. Mm-hmm. One man has has hurt him, and he has no no method of getting back at him. Right, one man that was part of a movement by a whole group. Well, I say that he actually killed him. So, <laughs> yeah, you would think issue settled, but not really. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. Well, maybe that's part of the betrayal is the fact that he had to kill him. It, right N- now, he has to live with that. Yeah, but now he's got a, a Nietzschean on board, and it's causing him to reflect on everything that has happened before in his relations with Nietzscheans. Uh, now you have Tyr doing things his own way, but it's 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 causing Dylan to see Rade in a different light. Mm-hmm. Now he's beginning to understand why Rade did and said certain things that he did and said. Um, but Tyr has no connection to Dylan. Mm-hmm. Well, at least not, not certainly not like his first officer had with him. And so now in that light, now he's seeing things. This isn't just a, this isn't a Rade thing. This is a Nietzschean thing mm-hmm. is, is the association that he's beginning to make now. And now he understands he has to be a lot more cautious right. with these people. Um, well, that's because Rade is speaking in generalizations. True. Everything that he is teaching Dylan during that game of Go is the way Nietzscheans think. Yes. And it later, you know, Dylan realizes what it was that he was doing during that. But But through that whole thing, he wasn't just saying, I cheat so that I can win. He's saying a Nietzschean will do whatever it takes to win. Mm-hmm. Which, um, which I don't want to get too far off of the, the broader subject of, of the prejudice that Dylan is wrestling with in this fact. Um, I, I really feel like we get a, a much deeper look at Tyr and how he functions. Well, I mean, obviously we do. This is a Nietzschean episode. Yes. We learn a lot about the Nietzscheans um, and make whatever parallels you want with with them in regards to other races like Klingons or things like that. This is an interesting race. And and I was interested by their portrayal in, in learning some of the background of the Nietzscheans and how they think and how they, they, uh, they function as a culture. Yeah. It, I don't mean to interrupt, but it, it just, just as a race, it kind of, it makes you wonder if, what if Khan and his group had got off of Alpha Seti five? Yeah. Anyway, I didn't really have a point with that, but you know, it's just, it's just. But no, it is a good point. Yeah, okay. It is a good. What? What if the genetically modified human beings that were so evil in in the Star Trek universe? What if they were allowed to just function? And what is the role of this this genetically modified race? We don't really know yet. We might not find out. I don't know, but it certainly stands to reason that this they were developed in order to be warriors. And they certainly show that warrior-like attitude and spirit. And that reflects on everything that they do, from breeding to, you know, family life. It's it's very warrior-like, survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really interesting uh, to see that. Tyr himself, though, um, it, I made a note when the first couple of times that I 
that I was watching this, I made the note, Tyr does a great job at looking like he's double-crossing the Andromeda. And then as I watched a second and a third time, uh, my viewpoint changed. Uh, as, I, as I was watching it at subsequent times and putting things together, Tyr isn't... He's not faking it. No, no. He's not acting like he's betraying the Andromeda. He's keeping his options open. Yeah, exactly. And, and I thought that was... Wow! You know, that... How difficult, how stark would it be to live your life that way to where you literally only trust yourself? You mm-hmm. don't even trust other people that you're married to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. Whatever it takes. Cheat, lie, steal, murder. And it this is as a race is how they function. And I'm speaking of Nietzscheans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I thought that was really interesting. It really brings to the forefront the that dynamic as a you can't call them villains they're not villains they're just another element of this universe well these particular ones are they're well they they were they were pirates so yeah um they are you're right yeah i guess they are kind of villains and yet dylan wants to court these villains (laughs) these antagonists and bring them into the fold, so to speak. That's that's ultimately what he wants to do. Uh, in the end, nobody gets what they want, mm-hmm. and that was it. Was kind of sad, even though Dylan kind of are all right. He has to wrestle with the idea of prejudice, but he's not really prejudiced. And I think Rev Bim does a good job of pointing that out to him. Uh, but he does realize he he's got some issues that he needs to work out before he can even begin to contemplate trusting this particular race. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which I thought was interesting. An interesting take on the the idea of prejudice. And not just Dylan's wrestling with prejudice, but prejudice within the Nietzscheans. Mm-hmm. You know, because the genes, whether or not you had good genes or not, and who makes a good match, and alphas, and, you know, what, li- what line of uh, wife you are. Mm-hmm. All of that comes into play. And I don't know if that's so much prejudice within a, a race or within a, a species, uh, but it certainly starts to call into mind things like caste systems and and, yeah. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought this was just there was a lot to 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 absorb in this episode. Yeah, and then there's also a throwback to uh, to loose the fateful lightning when Rev Bim says he he there's a quote from Rev Bim. He says, "Do I not destroy my enemy by making him my friend?" So there we have that same theme again. It's supposed to be a commonwealth, blind ideal, and uh, and Rev Bim restates it. Yeah. So. Yeah. No. 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 That's 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 a good point. I just thought that was interesting. What do you know about Machiavelli? Machiavelli. You know what? I actually did some research on the on the on the dude. Excellent. I went back to the 15th century. The reason I ask <laughs> you, the reason I ask you is because there was a quote in this episode. In fact, it opened with it. It says Machiavelli's ideas are basically sound ones for the Nietzschean people. Unfortunately, he was an optimist. All right. So, keeping that quote in mind, what what sort of information did you come up with there? I, I was just looking at at Machiavelli and and particularly his writings in uh, is it the Prince? Mm-hmm. Was that, yeah, yeah. The, yes. What he's most famous for, uh, the ends justify the means, and that is ultimately at the very center of of Nietzschean culture. The ends justify the means, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you got to cheat, if you got to become corrupt, so be it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can just be the alpha male and and be the you know the loudest voice in the room, so be it. If that works, if that gets you what you need, if that gets you where you need to be, mm-hmm. and ultimately husband, father is that that's the yeah that's the main thing for for Nietzscheans. Mm-hmm. If that gets you that, and and, and you know your hand over <laughs> your your enemies, um, yeah, that's then it doesn't matter what you do. That's what it takes. Might makes right. Might, yeah, exactly. I thought it, one one work that I found um, about Machiavelli, you know, there's so much of his personality that uh, I think, from what I found, is very misleading. Because you have you have this this idea of of the way he thought from this 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 work he wrote of the Prince. That was just something he wrote. 
Yeah. That doesn't mean that's what he believed. Right. Um, we're, we've both dabbled in writing. Have you ever written something that you didn't believe? It was just a good story. Yeah. Or it was just a good uh, poem or something. I, I, yeah, I've, I I've done that. You mm-hmm. know, I've written, I like to write uh, songs from from somebody else's viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Which is hard to do. And, and, and make it kinda, sound good. That's kind of why I try to do it. Yeah. But, you know, but what's happened to me, this has happened to me before. I, I've written a song and then somebody else, for example, one time my wife looked at one of these songs that I had written. <laughs> yeah. And she is like, who is this about? What's what's going on? Right. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Draw, make the connection here. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like, no, no, no. This has nothing to do with anyone that we know. Mm-hmm. I made up a story in my mind. I made up characters, and then those characters or that character wrote this song. Yeah, you know. And and so in regard to Machiavelli himself, mm-hmm. basically the world has vilified him, right? Because of his, it looks like he's uh, a, a proponent of uh, corruption mm-hmm. within government. You know. Might makes right, ends justify the means, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. People attribute that to him, and that's that's who he was. That's that's what he taught, mm-hmm. and that wasn't the case at all. This was just a work of, this was a work of fiction, you know. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting the way it it vilified him. Yeah, and you know that that didn't really have anything to do with with uh, this episode as far as what I just said, but I just thought it was an interesting point. Right, it just you can the the way like like you said, he was vilified. Yeah. For something that he didn't necessarily believe. Yeah. You know, we, we do it on this show. We and, play devil's advocate sometimes. And, and that's that's where that last part of that quote makes okay. sense. Yeah. Unfortunately, as the Nietzscheans view, view him, he was an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't really believe what he taught, which isn't what he was teaching. Anyway, we've already discussed all of that. But yeah, I, I think that was an interesting quote. And... Uh, uh, kudos for putting it in there because it made me go back to the 15th century to to look at Machiavelli. I've heard that name, mm-hmm. you know, Machiavellian plans, Ma- Machiavellian plans. Have I got that right? I never can remember if I've got the pronunciation of it correct or not. But in any case, what did what did we learn? Uh, speak three, with authority. I know, ago. I know, yeah. I know. I got I got to drill that into my mind. Uh, so yeah, that term. Machiavellian plans, you know, I've heard that. I never really fully understood it. It was nice to go back and look at it. And, you know, it took a TV show uh, for me to to go do that. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, Speaking of TV show, we watched this TV show. What did you think of this one? You know what? Um, I liked it. I liked it. Uh, There was some interesting dynamic between particularly the guest stars and and Tyr and Dylan Mm -hmm. uh, that was interesting to watch. Uh, I brought it up before, you know, putting the whole bloody hand on the on Dimitri's face and then shoving him, <laughs> shoving him back to the crowd. You know, it, things like that were were. It was fun. Mm-hmm. There was some fun things to see, uh, and yet at the same time, you get this really broad view of the Nietzscheans and just what it is, exactly it is that Dylan is up against mm-hmm. in trying to build the Commonwealth, and he's going to have to face them. Whether or not he gets this particular group involved with him or not doesn't matter. It's he's going to have to deal with them at some point, and that's going to be a tall order. And I think that was really interesting. And I like this episode because it gives us that view mm-hmm. of what's to come. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I liked it. I like this episode a lot, actually. You know what? I did too. And you know, I've I've mentioned before that that I had seen Andromeda in its first run, and. I didn't get to see all of them. I didn't get to see the end of it. I had to go back and watch them all over again and do that. But there were at least a good couple of handfuls of of episodes of Andromeda that I saw. This was one of them. And this was one of the ones that I very vividly remembered. Um, so, so for that, I mean, it, it made an impact on me. And it stuck with me for... Well, let's see. I started watching Andromeda over again last year. Mm-hmm. So it came out in 2000. So, I mean, we're talking 12 to 13 years, depending on exactly when I started watching it again. Yeah, yeah so is this among one of your favorites? 
I don't know. It could be. Okay. I mean, it could be possibly that, just for nostalgic region, reasons. An, we'll table that. We'll come back to it maybe at the end of this first season, maybe. And okay. We'll, 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 All right. we'll see where it rates. Then. All right. But yeah, I mean, but this was one of the episodes that I specifically remembered. Um, and it's, I think for an episode to do that, I think you've either got to think it's really good or really bad. <laughs> there aren't yeah. there aren't those so so meh episodes that stick with you like that, right? And this one did. And for me, it was because I really liked it. There you go. Yeah. All right. So that was Double Helix, and both Ryan and I enjoyed that episode very much. And we encourage you, the listener, if you haven't watched it already and are following along with the podcast with us, uh, go back and watch it, because it's a, it's a very good episode. And if you don't know much about Nietzscheans or Andromeda, the series, uh, this is... I, 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 would, I would venture to say it's one of those seminal episodes that you need to see. Yeah, I definitely think yeah, so. To kind of get some of the background. So if you like what you've heard here on Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast, uh, where can you follow us? Well, right. you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at the handle Andromeda Pod on both of those. Now, if you want to get a hold of us by email, I think, Ethan, you know where that is, right? Uh, yeah, that's uh, I'm monitoring that. That's drivebackthenightpodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, if you haven't found us there already, it's uh, andromedaseries.podbean.com. You can find all of our episodes there. And... Uh, you can find us on iTunes, and be sure and give us the stars or review. We would certainly appreciate that. Yeah, and once again, we want to thank Age of Geek for uh, for producing us. Thank Tim Kimmerly for uh, giving us his voiceovers. And uh, that's going to do it for us uh, today, and we hope that you will join us back here again next week where we are going to consider Angel Dark, Demon Bright. Demon Bright.